first of all, it's just good to see um, you know, people that are uh, coming back and joining us. Uh, and um, for some of you, this may be the first time you've heard the, the sound system and all, but and there's probably a lot of new faces, and that's exciting. It's exciting for us to uh, connect and get to know one another. If you find yourself struggling, remember we did a sermon series on Nehemiah Ezra. Uh, go back and listen to it again. It'll maybe help you through um, the transitions of, of, of coming back and, and worshiping and connecting again as church. Well, we've been going through this sermon series on the road to the kingdom, and someone asked a good question this week, and we'll be answering it more and more uh, throughout this time, but, you know, what exactly do we mean by the kingdom? Um, so, so save that question. I think we're talking about it as we go along the way, but, but um, at some point we're going to give a really firm, um, strong definition on that. But we started back in Genesis, and we looked at how God had made everything, and he made everything especially good for humanity. But then we read about the fall, the sin that came. And then last week in chapter 1, we, we, we looked at the power of sin and how sin enslaved. And here today in chapter 2, um, we're going to kind of build on that and, and see how Paul uh, writes about the pervasiveness of sin and the subversiveness of sin. And you might go like, whoa, those are two big words. What do you mean? Basically, sin is everywhere and sin is in everything. Sin is everywhere and sin is in everything. That means you. It means me. It means every nook and cranny. We are thoroughly sinful, which, what, it's, which is why we cannot just be cleaned up. We have to be made new through the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to come to chapter 2 today. You know, before we get there, though, you know, um, you know I was trying to, you know, think about you know, what's kind of caught up here and what Paul is, what Paul's doing, what Paul's talking about. But some of you have heard this before, but uh, my daughters, um, when they were younger, I think they still believe this, that my resting face, which is my face when I'm not thinking about anything, is a mad face. So you know what that means, right? It looks angry even when I'm not angry. And, you know, a mad face is really good for um, if you play poker. Anybody ever play poker? Like, if you play poker, poker is not about getting good cards and winning. It's about being able to bluff. And so sometimes they talk about having a poker face. No matter what, when you look at the person, you can't tell what cards they have. However, really good gamblers, they both have this, and if they're good, they can figure out the other person's, and it's called the tell. And the tell is something that a poker player will do when they're bluffing that they won't do when they're not bluffing. The problem is they don't know they're doing it. And of course, if you're trying to win, you're not going to tell them. So it could be something as simple as what they do with their hand, or maybe they tap the card, or sometimes it's something on their face. If you ever see the professional um, poker players, they wear sunglasses, and they're big sunglasses because they don't want anything to give away what they're doing. Because, you know, if you, if you have this tell, then, you know, you're going to lose. 
if the, the worst thing would be to think like, oh, I don't have any tells. I'm, I'm, I'm perfect. I, I, you know, I know myself. There's nothing I do to give things away. And if you did that, you would be fooling yourself. Well, I think the problem that Paul's going to confront today is Christians who fool themselves. They fool themselves by thinking, you know, I got this all together. You know, I'm okay. I'm humble enough to say I'm not like Jesus. But, you know, I, I think I'm doing okay. And what they do is they fool themselves by, by wrapping their sin in righteousness to the point that they don't even know that they're doing it. They've fooled themselves so thoroughly, they don't know that they, they have a tell, they have a flaw, because they've done it in righteousness. Because even though I'm humble enough to say I'm not like Jesus, I'm righteousness to say I'm not like you or whoever I decide to compare myself to. In fact, some people get so good at this that they can, they can take what is sin and they can actually, they can kind of biblify it. I just made that word up, by the way. They, they can create like a biblical explanation for why they're doing what they're doing, even though it's clearly wrong. That's what Paul's confronting here. See, in chapter 1, Paul was kind of unpacking the, the history of sin. He was saying, like, this is how sin got into the world, and this is what it's done. But he was talking in a way that his Jewish listeners, his Jewish Christian listeners, the traditional Jewish ones, they would have been knowing that he's talking about those Gentiles. But what Paul's doing is he's doing something that's... that's the Jewish, traditional Jewish people should have known coming was coming, but for some reason they kept, they always missed it. He's doing what some of the Old Testament prophets would do. The Old Testament prophets would, would like give judgments. They would, you know, give God's judgment on the city of Tyre or give, give God's judgment on the Egyptians or give God's judgment on the ba Babylonians. And, you know, you can tell, like, when this was being read that the Israelites would be like, yeah, you go, God. You, and then all of a sudden he'd say, and you, O Israel, you, O Israel, here's what I have against you. I think a lot of Christians, even today, when they read that Romans 1, 18 through 32, there's a sense where they're like, yeah, you go, Paul. Yeah, those are the things that are, you know, destroying our society, you know, all that idolatry, all that sexual morality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see it everywhere. And then Paul turns to the real target his real audience. It wasn't all of those sinners out there. He turns his attention to those people that were within the church, those people who, are, who, are, who would be so happy to hear Paul seemingly go after all those sinners. And he turns on them. And then he says, this is the more important message. What I told you was the history. 
what I'm about to tell you is your reality. Scary. This would be the time to run away if you don't want to hear because Paul's description of the reality of the Christians 2,000 years ago is still some people's reality today. And so we're going to back up. We're going to cover the last bit of of, uh, chapter 1 again, and then we're going to run into chapter 2. And in chapter 1, verse 28, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So this is talking about, again, sin, and it's predominantly talking about the Gentile world. It says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, I want you to kind of keep in mind that series in verse uh, 31, just four words. Um, just keep that in mind. By the way, if you ever have to do Bible memory verse drill, it's the like second shortest verse in the Bible, so it'd be a good one to memorize. But I want you to remember, because we're going to come back to that in a second. But the first thing we want to see here is we want to see the, the hidden sin and how this hidden sin is revealed in these Christians. And what we see is hidden sin is not just in what we do, but it's also in what we approve. It's not just in what we do, it's also in what we approve. You see, if... if if, if Paul had just kind of stayed with the general idolatry and the sexual immorality, a lot of the Christians, whether they were Jewish or, or the more faithful Gentile Christians, they would have been like, that's not me. I don't do that. And they would have been right. They would have been right. They, they don't make idols. They're not engaging in sexual immorality. But then Paul just explodes this sin bomb. You know, we have this sin bomb that, that starts there in verse 29, and it's just like, boom, 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 boom. Again and again and again. And he ends by saying, yeah, you do these things, and you give approval to those who do these things. It's, it's, it's this idea of kind of like, you give approval. Why would you give approval? For different reasons. You may be doing approval because someone else is is doing your dirty work. And you're like, okay. That's good. Somebody's doing it. It could be because you enjoy it. This is probably the thing that we as Christians in modern times struggle with the most. We enjoy it. We are entertained by sin. You go... Um, you know, watch any kind of media today. You read books, you listen to music. Most of it is, is somehow talking about sin and we enjoy it. It's entertaining. And it's not just like 
sin being talked about that leads to a great message or a great moral. I mean, the Bible has examples of sin, but there's a purpose behind it. But we actually enjoy these stories, I mean, these, these, these shows and these movies and, and, and all this that just, just kind of glorifies sin. I mean, you know, we thought it was bad enough back in the, those of us grew up in the 80s and the 90s when you had all these, um, you know, these talk shows that started coming on the TV and then they would try to get people together and get them to fight. You know, Jerry Springer was the worst of them all. And what's worse is how many people enjoyed seeing human misery and human tragedy because they found it entertaining. We do that again, you know, in so much of what we do now. And I don't want to go into all the ways that we give approval to sin in our culture. And I don't even want to get into the point right now of trying to give you an exhaustive list of what you should do. But I do want to make sure that you are at least aware of it. That you, are know, you know that what you could be doing could be giving approval or support or just enjoying the misery and the sin of others. And this is actually showing, this connects back to the garden. If you remember in the garden, Adam and Eve's, one of their problems is they wanted to be like God. And what this is saying here in verse 32 is that they are being like God. They are judging sin and saying it's okay. They've become like God. Well, we then get to chapter 2, and this is where, again, Paul's readers, as this is being read out loud to the church at Rome, you know, there's, there's, I'm sure there were some in the group that would, were like, yes, Paul, you're finally addressing all these important issues. And then he says, therefore you have no excuse, O man. Okay, now you're like, wait, okay, okay, now he's kind of doing this clever thing. He's going to keep doing this, and he's created this character, O man, And then he says, every one of you who judges. So far, he's only talked about judging in one way, and that's judging sin to be good, sin to be okay. He's about to talk about judging in the other way. But make no mistake who he's talking to. He's talking to all of those people who were listening to what was being said in Romans 1 and judging, 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 even perhaps thinking of people. Yeah, I know somebody like that. Yep, I know him. Sitting right next to me, right now. And he says, Oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I want to stop for a second because I want to make sure you're reading this in context because most people take this out of context. They take anything that says about judging and they take it out of context. 
What Paul is writing about is Christians judging other Christians. That's the first thing he's talking about. He's talking about within the church, Christians judging other Christians. We know that this was a problem in the, in the early church from almost day one. Especially at first, it was Christians who came out of a more traditional Orthodox Jewish life, and now they've become Christians, and they're judging either the, the Jewish people who were just ethnically Jewish but not religiously or culturally, or they were judging the Gentiles. Now, I'm going to tell you that this all flips. It eventually comes the Gentiles are judging the Jewish people. But in this point, it's this other way. And so he's talking to this problem that maybe isn't happening in Rome in, in the church at Rome yet, but it probably is because it's been happening in the church from Jerusalem all the way spread across the Roman Empire. So when we read this, keep that in mind. That's the context. So he says, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you, you the judger, not the sinner over there, you the judger, to lead you to repentance? scary. Here they were just like, oh great, it's another letter from Paul. That's pretty awesome. He's talking about sin and all those sinners. And then he says, you need repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul has created this, this fictional opponent, the judger. I'll give him a name, the judger. And the judger is, is judging on both sides, sometimes giving hearty approval to sin as being okay or good, and then now in condemning people and judging what their, their lives are, what their sin is. And what Paul does is he, he started this off by talking about the two big things that most of the judges could have said, no, I don't do that. But then, as he starts talking about this list from verse 29 down, if they're honest, if they haven't wrapped up their sin in righteous words and righteous thought, if they're actually honest, they're going to start seeing themselves in what's there. Paul is trying to get them to take a deeper look at their heart. You see, people who are judges are really good at selective righteousness. And they're really good at like, uh, at like 
superficial righteousness, that which is on the surface. But Paul, this is what he cares about. He cares about their actions. Yes, sinful actions are sin. But he cares about their hearts. He cares about what's motivating all of that. And he's trying to get them to take a deeper look at their hearts. Because if they take a deeper look at their hearts in the name of standing up for the things of God and, being, and doing what's right and defending God's truth, they could have been accused of those things that are happening from verse 29 to verse 32. And remember, I told you, remember those four words in verse 31, and one of them says, heartless. Heartless. And you're like, well, that's probably not me. Well, it might not be you. I'm, I'm not saying everybody is this way. But do we know? And one of the ways a hidden sin is revealed, it's revealed in our attitudes towards Christians who are different from us. Christians who are different from us. This isn't a new problem. This has always been a problem. We just changed the things that, that are different. Back then, it was the traditional Jewish people versus, really, the rest of Christians. And what Paul is trying to help them understand, which he tried to help them understand in Galatians, is that that is a threat to the true gospel. If you're going to divide along these lines, if your attitude is going to be judgmental towards these Christians who are different from you, not different from you in the ways that matter. Understand this. This isn't difference or diversity for diversity's sake. We still need to hold to the one Lord, the one Savior, the one God, the one Word. That's all still there. But there's a lot of these other differences that they were allowing to divide, and in fact, they were creating a false gospel of works. But it's not just a threat to the gospel. It's not just a threat to the gospel message when Christians judge other Christians on, not on the things that matter, but on just their differences. It's a threat to the unity of the church, the health of the church. When we begin to judge people based on where they're from, when we begin to judge people based on the cultural marks that they may bear coming from, from different backgrounds, when we, when we judge people because of the consequences of their past sin, when we judge people according to their level of education or their, their socioeconomic status, it's a threat to the unity. And when I explain it that way, I hope you know that you go like, yeah, I get it. We don't have that Jewish-Gentile debate thing going on, but we have the same problems. We have people who still have a 
works law gospel, which usually comes around where they never say it quite this way, but they kind of think it and, again, wrap it up in righteous language, which is what they're really saying is, if you really want to be a Christian, you have to be a lot more like me. You got to do what I do. And it's a threat to the gospel. But we also see that same judgmental attitude from Christian to Christian is a threat to the unity of the church. And remember, the unity of the church, God places such a high premium on the unity of the church. And, you know, it's one of those things like, I'm not a super loud preacher, but sometimes I want to be loud because I want to make sure you understand this, even though I might have said it many times. For whatever reason, God says, you want to know the evidence that I am God, the evidence that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who who died for our sins, who will make us new. You want to know the evidence for that? The evidence is in the unity of the church, in how Christians love each other. There's the evidence. Is the unity of the church that important to you? Because it's that important to God. And so when we start to judge other Christians, again, not based on the important core beliefs that we we all should have, but because of of other things that, that, that they still bear the marks of, it's a problem. A lot of times in our time, it's, it comes up mostly generationally. I mean, when I, was, when I was growing up, who got tattoos? Well, if they weren't criminals, then they were in the military. That's it. So it's really easy for people from my generation and earlier to be very judgy if you've got tattoos. And by the way, even if you did get a tattoo, it was just a, it was a nice little, I love mom, or a little, you know, maybe you're in the Marines, you know, Semper Fi, or something like that. It was something nice like that. But you didn't put tattoos all over your whole body and on your face. What's wrong with you? The, the earrings. I'm not a jewelry person. I've never been a jewelry person. I only wear a watch because I like to know what my heart rate is. But I, I you know, but I know people, they love earrings or worse, you know, the things sticking out of their noses and stuff like that. You know what? We're, we're really going to question someone's spiritual maturity based on the jewelry that they wear? Okay, if they had a big necklace that said, I love Satan, all right, you know, we need to talk, right? But, but how many times we, we make these assumptions about people and about their Christian lives based on the cultural marks, the cultural diversity that they bring into this place? It's the same problem. And I just love how Paul just, he's so good at this. He, he's just like, 
Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? You, judger, do you presume on that? Do you presume that the fact that God is letting you judge and he is not just bringing the hammer down on your head, that that's God saying you're right? It's like, no, God's being kind to you. He's being kind to you to lead you to repentance. And if you don't take care of this, it's going to lead to the far greatest, greater sin, which is, in verse 5, the hard and impenitent heart. We cannot have a healthy church if we have a church full of people who have hard and impenitent hearts. Even if it's just towards one or two other people or to different types of people. And what Paul saw happening is that, that these, these believers, and he treats them as believers, that they were turning an unforgiving, hard heart into justification for righteousness. And that allowed them to judge. It allowed them to sometimes ignore and sometimes approve and condone of other sins because they were basically the judge. But here's what I know, and I know it because I read it in the Bible, and I know it because I've met a lot of people like this, and I know it because it's true in my life. I wish it were truer. But sinners saved by grace, sinners who know they are saved by grace, they are much more humble when they talk about other people's sin. You want, you, you want to like spot the evidence that someone doesn't really understand they're saved by grace? It's when they talk with a lack of humility about other people's sin. You see, if I really understand that I'm a sinner saved by grace, other people's sin should, when I become aware of other people's sin, it should result in a deeper love for them. It should result in a desire to help them, even if I know I can't. I want to. I'm going to. If, if I can do nothing else but pray until blood, you know, drops of blood come from my brow, that's what I'm going to do if that's all God allows me to do. Instead of doing what we often do when we find about other Christians, it's this, you know, tusk, tusk. Well, you know, I knew it was going to happen. No, other people's sin shouldn't make us feel more righteous. It should give us a deeper love for them. Other people's sin should also remind us of our undealt with sin. And we all got them. I said last week that one of the ways we can summarize what the church should be is that we are loving each other to holiness. We are loving each other to holiness. We're not forgetting holiness, which unfortunately a lot of churches want to do in the name of love. 
And we're not forgetting love with a lot of churches want to do in the name of holiness. But we are loving each other to holiness. We are doing what Paul says God is doing in verse 4. God's kindness is leading us to repentance. You know, and, and you know, last week when I was you know, talking about people who are kind of caught up in this whole gender fluidity, um, uh, things that are happening and, and they're struggling with this or they've you know, come to grips with it or they believe something very different from what the Bible says and, and they have struggles when, when I say stuff like this, that I want to love you to holiness. And, and they want to say, so you're saying, again, my lifestyle is, is, is you're, you're saying it's sin. And yeah, I am. But I'm not here to condemn and I'm not here to judge. But I want, I, want, I want people to know that the reason I could say what I said last week, which is, I will love you better, it's not because of me, but because of Christ in me. And I want to be able to say that the same God, the same God who calls your behavior, calls your attitude, calls your lifestyle, sin in his word is the same God who tells me to love you and empowers me to love you. It's the same God, the same Bible. Do you want me to believe it absolutely or do you want me to be like others and just pick and choose the parts that I'm going to believe? We sing the song, How Great Is Our God, and, and it's a great song, and I don't think this would fit in the lyrics, but if I could, it would be something like, How Great Is Our God? He's great enough to help me love those I might otherwise judge. He's that great. What we learn is that God's righteousness, his holiness, cannot be separated from his mercy, his kindness and love. It's not separated in God, and it cannot be separated in, us, in those of us who are the children of God. Verse 6, he says, He will render to each one according to his works. Oh, that causes a lot of consternation among people if, if you're bothered um, you need to come on Wednesdays and we can talk about this more. But he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. You see, Paul is trying to drive this point home because he knows it's, it's not just good for these uh, people who are the judges, but it's good for us all. And the point he's trying to drive home is holiness is revealed in what we do and why we do it. What we do and why we do it doesn't create holiness, simply reveals it. By the way, the same is true of hidden sin. Hidden sin is revealed in what we do and why we do it. And, and to prevent this from becoming like, oh, verse 6, it's, isn't that like the opposite of what he said in Galatians? No, it's not the opposite. 
It's not the opposite because what, what Paul says in verse 7, he knows and he's going to unpack later on in Romans to say this is only possible if God does it. This is what you need to do, but you can't do it. It's only possible if God does it. Love is essential to holiness, but you cannot love on your own. You can only love if God transforms you. And the end of this is verse 9. He says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. There's several times where Paul is playing that same thing where he says one thing and, he, and his readers, especially the judges, are like, are going with that and thinking Paul's going in this direction and Paul changes direction. That's what he does here. He's actually acknowledging something that, that the Jewish, uh, traditional Jewish Christian is thinking, which is, hey, Jesus himself said he came for the Jew first and then the Greek. And Paul's like, yeah. And that's true not just with glory, honor, and peace. It's also true for tribulation and distress. But his ultimate point isn't that or to get into that whole discussion, but what he says in verse 11, that God shows no partiality. That God's relationship to us is not dependent upon our ethnicity. It's not dependent upon the fact that we're part of some select group. As he's just said, God relates to us according to what we do and why we do it. And I can't repeat this enough. I can't repeat this enough. This isn't a works gospel. This isn't a, oh, I'm going to try and, you know, you know prove to God how, how awesome I am and how God should, um, you know, really love me and take care of me. No, that's not what he's saying. But he, he is saying this, this idea of no partiality, it, it, it comes from how God views us. The primary way he sees us is our relationship to him through Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to unpack this in the chapters to come. You see, it is still ultimately his work in us. We can never forget that. The why we do what we do has to come from him. And the why, if it's going to be acceptable to him, has to be his love. And that's something, again, we cannot generate. And there's no partiality. There's no special club within the club. There's no church within the church. There's no elect within the elect. And if God is this way, we should not be any other way. That's the hidden sin. The hidden sin is, is the hard heart revealed in how we look at other people in their sin. I said it is primarily Paul talking about Christians looking at other Christians. But by the way, we can do this by looking outside the church too. 
The wrong attitude is the judger, the judgmental, to either decide they're okay, that's okay, or to decide they're condemned, that's terrible. You're the judger. It's wrong. Because either we're going to allow people to stay in their sin because we've said it's okay, or we're going to condemn them and offer them no hope, no mercy, no grace. What's right? How do we not have this hard heart, this hidden sin? It's compassion. It's love. It's not that we don't see sin. We see sin. But when we see sin, we see people. We see people gripped in sin, people enslaved to sin, people in need, people who are lost, people who are confused, people who are wounded. They need you. And it's not no hope, no mercy, no grace. It's God's hope, God's mercy, God's grace that only comes from Jesus Christ. See, it's God's job to judge. And a lot of his judgments are written here in his word. He's given us the job to love and he's empowered us to do it. And that's my prayer. My prayer is that if, if, if you are not someone with the, the heart of the judger, whether you're approving of other people's sin or whether you're condemning other people's sin, that if, that if you have that heart that, that God would reveal that to you, help you to repent and really get on this path of, of better loving each other to holiness. If you don't have this sin, spend some time thanking God. Thanking God that he has, has allowed you to, to grow in your faith to the point that you're not this way. And please don't judge the others who are, because then you'll become just the same.